Well, as many of you know, Andrew Rosashansky and Natalie Rader uh, just got married on Friday night. But in doing their premarriage counseling, we talked at length about the three components to every marriage acceptance, appreciation, and communication. Now, I believe acceptance and appreciation are the foundation on which every marriage relationship is built. But I'm convinced communication is the biggest potential pitfall. So communication is kind of like the oil of the marriage engine. So when there's lots of it, the engine is well lubricated and running great. So there's lots of open, honest, free-flowing, easy-come, easy-go, transparent communication where each person feels understood, accepted, and appreciated. Things are going great. When there's no communication or there's bad communication, it's like an engine with no oil. So it's bumpy, grinding gears, loud noises, and often everything comes to a screeching halt. So either couples don't talk enough, or when they talk, they don't really understand and appreciate one another. Or maybe there's tone, or anger, or frustration, or a history. Whatever it is, you've got a problem because there hasn't been open, honest, transparent, clear communication. So then where are you as a couple? Well, nobody really knows because you haven't been clearly communicating, which sets you on a downward spiral that leads to disconnection, disunity, lack of intimacy, and no joy. But when there's good communication, the marriage flourishes, doesn't it? Because you can work all these issues out, your, your misunderstandings, your, your miscommunication. You can work hard to understand, appreciate, and enjoy one another. So communication is essential in the marriage relationship. And I would suggest that communication is essential in our relationship with the Lord. Because in order for us to have a right relationship with God, we've got to know him. And we've got to relate to him. So we've got to communicate. But here's the deal. When it comes to our relationship with God, the problem is all ours, isn't it? Because God has abundantly over and over again communicated with us, not only through creation, but through his word, through the law of the Lord, and ultimately through his son. So the question is not, has God communicated? He has. The question is, have we been listening? Have we been learning? Have we been loving his son and living our lives according to his law? And do we think somehow that's a once and done kind of thing, as if communication with your spouse is a once and done kind of thing? Or do we recognize that our relationship with God must be cultivated over and over and over again on a daily basis? that we might stand in awe of him and live in such a way that brings him glory and honor and praise. So those thoughts in your mind, go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Psalm 19. Outline is right there in your bulletin. As I said, we're taking a break from the Ten Commandments to just get an orientation on the word, on the law of the Lord. How should we think about it before we jump back into the book of Exodus next Sunday? So Psalm 19, if you would follow along as I read verses 1 to 6. The psalmist says, The heavens declare the glory of God, 
and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom, leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. So here's the question as we jump in. What is your response to creation? What do you see when you look up at the Big Dipper or a snow-covered mountain or a beautiful sunset or the Grand Canyon? What do you see? Now, it's helpful to understand that in the context of this passage, people were tempted to see gods and worship them. That's why Moses instructs the people of Israel in Deuteronomy 17 that if there is found among you a man or a woman who has gone and served other gods and worshiped them, the sun or the moon or the host of heaven, which God has forbidden, they shall be brought outside of the city and stoned. So according to the law, worshiping the sun or the moon or the stars was worthy of death. Because you're worshiping creation rather than worshiping the creator. Now I'm not sure if you've heard this story before or not, but Sir Isaac Newton once made a complete replica of our solar system. And from my understanding, it was quite elaborate. With the sun in the middle and and all the planets rotating around it, it even had cogs and belts so that everything moved in perfect harmony. It's beautiful. When all of a sudden, one day, an unbelieving friend stopped in just to visit him, saw this whole elaborate system, and said, wow, who made that? Newton responded with a little bit of an attitude, and he said to his friend, nobody. Unbelieving friend, atheist, said, what are you talking about? Nobody. Newton responded, seriously, nobody put it together. All these cogs and belts, gears and planets just happened to fall into place. Wonder of wonders, sun, moon, and stars, all by chance, just happened to come together, revolving in perfect timing. See, it was obvious to his friend. And it should be obvious to us. The earth didn't just happen by chance. No, God created the earth. And for that alone, he's worthy of our worship. So what should we see when we look at creation? We should see the glory of God. Just like verse 1 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. So God's fingerprints are all over creation. Look at verse 2. Day to day pours forth speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, meaning there's no place where their voice, the voice of the heavens and the sky, are not heard. Why? Because their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of of the world. So creation is screaming God's glory. But notice how creation also declares God's constancy, God's wisdom, and God's majesty. 
Because it's happening every single day, every single night, without glitch, without hesitation. So there's a consistency and a constancy to the created order, right? There's day and there's night, and they can be counted on. They're going to happen every single day, every single night. The sun's going to come up in the morning, and the sun's going to go down in the evening. Right? That's why the psalmist likens it to a bridegroom leaving his chamber headed for his bride or a strong man running a race. Verse 5 says, it bursts forth in the morning like a bridegroom coming from his chamber or a marathon runner running his race. And the race is obviously from one end of the heavens to the other. Verse 6, its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit, its path to the other end. So it's consistent. It's constant. It's always the same. Always going to happen. And every single day, it is always testifying of God's eternal glory. So creation declares God's constancy. It also declares God's wisdom. I mean, do you realize that if the earth was any closer to the sun, that we would burn up? But if the earth was any further away from the sun then we would freeze. Do you realize that the Earth's magnetic field protects us from cosmic rays that would otherwise kill us? Or the reality that we, we breathe out carbon dioxide, which plants take in, and in turn, they give us oxygen, which we absolutely need to live and thrive, and let me be frank, not die, right? Do you hear what I'm saying? There's not only order and constancy in creation, there's wisdom. Day-to-day pours forth speech, and night-to-night reveals knowledge, the knowledge of God, and his wisdom in the cycle of the seasons, wisdom in the placement of the earth, wisdom in the location of the sun, wisdom in the relationships between plants and animals and mankind. All of this testifies to the wisdom of God, the creator and the sustainer of the world who is worthy of our worship. Not just God's constancy or God's wisdom, but creation declares God's majesty. You know, when I want to feel small and humbled and in my right place in the world, do you know what I do? I read the book of Job. In particular, I read chapters 38 and 39. So if you know the book of Job, I tend to, in this season, skip over the first chapters where they dialogue with all the friends, and I go right to chapter 38 and 39. Because that's where God interrogates Job with questions like this. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, Job, if you have understanding. On what were its bases sunk, or who laid its cornerstone? Where is the way to the dwelling of light? Or where is the place of darkness? Or who said to the oceans, Job, thus far you shall go and no further? So for two chapters, these questions go on and on until Job is overwhelmed by the infinite majesty of God and essentially cries, uncle. But before we get there, chapter 26, if you look in your ESV Bible is titled, God's Majesty is Unsearchable. Job 26, verse 7. Listen to this. God stretches out the north over the void and hangs the earth on nothing. He binds up the waters in the clouds. 
He inscribes a circle on the face of the waters right at the boundary between light and darkness. The heavens tremble at his rebuke. By his power, he stills the sea. But behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways. And how small a whisper do we hear of him? What is Job saying? Job saying, all of God's glory seen in creation are but outskirts of his ways and whispers of who he really is in all of his glory. So the Grand Canyon is just an outskirt of his ways. Mount Everest is an outskirt of his ways. The Milky Way is just a whisper of who he really is in all of his glory. If the majesty and awe of the Milky Way is just a whisper of who God is in all of his glory, then how much more majestic is he? If Mount Everest and the Grand Canyon are just scratching the surface of his majesty, then we don't have words to describe the glory and the honor and the majesty of our great God. Now, why am I telling you all this? Well, because I want you to be in awe of who God is. But that's not possible if our hearts have some sort of functional awe of the glory of God. And why is that? Well, because if awe of God doesn't reign in your hearts, then awe of God won't shape the rest of our lives. And we'll just settle in for mediocrity. Just a Christian form of mediocrity. You know, Paul Tripp says mediocrity is not a time, personnel, or resource problem. No, mediocrity is a heart problem. So we've lost our commitment to the highest levels of excellence because we've lost our awe of God. Awe of God is fear-producing. It's inspiring, motivating, convicting, and commitment-producing. Awe of God protects us from us by asking more of us than we'd ever ask of ourselves. Awe of God reminds us that it is not about us. And so keeps us from dropping our guard when it's convenient. Awe reminds us that God is so glorious that it's impossible for us as ambassadors of Christ to have standards that are too high. Because excellence in the Christian life flows from a heart that is in holy, reverential, life-rearranging awe of who God is in all of his glory. So this life-rearranging awe only happens when we bask in the glory and the honor and the majesty of who God is and all that he's accomplished for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. How do we know that? Well, because God not only reveals himself to us in creation, but he's revealed himself to us in his word, the law of the Lord. So we must be committed to learn the law, to love the law, and to live the law, all for our good and for God's glory. And thankfully, the rest of Psalm 19 unpacks exactly what that looks like. So if you would go ahead and follow along as I read verses 7 to 11. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, 
rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. So apparently, as glorious as God's revelation is through creation, God's revelation through Scripture is even better, seen first in the nature of Scripture. So, so just like a diamond with many facets, Scripture is referred to in many different ways, right? You see that in verses 7 to 9. It's called the law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, the commandment of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, and the rules of the Lord. So all different ways of referring to the nature of Scripture, so not intended to be sharply distinguished from one another. Instead, it provides a comprehensive description of the nature of Scripture, like looking at all different facets of a single, glorious, brilliant, illuminating diamond. By the way, Psalm 119 does the exact same thing, only in a far more comprehensive way. So one of my thoughts for preaching this morning, taking a break from the Ten Commandments, was to just read to you Psalm 119, which would have taken about 45 minutes. And we could have done it standing. We could have stood for the reading of the Word. We just would have stood here for 45 minutes and heard the glory of the law of the Lord. That was an option. I went in this direction. You know, I'm not sure which was better. But it it helps us, right? Psalm 119 helps us in so many ways. It gives us all the same language, right? Law, testimony, precepts, statute, but it adds one that we don't have here. I think it's fascinating that it's not here in Psalm 19. Psalm 119 adds this description, the word of God. It's not here in Psalm 19. Do you know how, do you realize how critical it is to recognize that what you're holding in your hands is God's word? Scripture is the word of God, written to the people of God so that we might live for the glory of God. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture is God-breathed. It's God-spoken, God-given, God-provided, God-speaking, communicating to you. Now just think about that for a moment. That means that the book in your hands, the book that you're holding, 39 Old Testament books, 27 New Testament books, 66 canonical books, is the very word of God. God speaking. God revealing. God making himself known to you. Now don't you think that you knowing the author of this book has everything to do with the likelihood that you're ever going to read this book. Do you understand how those two things necessarily hold together, that the author of the book is necessary for you to know in order for you to likely be reading that book? Let me prove it to you. Do you read every single letter that's sent to your house with equal interest and excitement? How about the myriad of credit card letters inviting you to open a new account yet again? How about the advertisements asking you to quote a new roof 
or new siding. I, I was gone for eight weeks. I have the same card eight times over waiting for me when I get home. Do you seriously read those letters with the exact same excitement as you do letters that come to you from long-lost friends? Absolutely not. You chuck them in the trash, right? right? That's why we call it junk mail. But the letters from your friends, those you keep, those you stare at, those you read over and over and over again with great joy in your heart. The nature of scripture is that it's the word of God. So if you don't have a right sense of the awe of God, you're never gonna have an appropriate interest, excitement, and zeal to read the word of God. Think about that this morning. Why don't you read your Bibles? Do you have a right understanding of God? Maybe that's the problem. Understanding a right awe of God that you might love the word of God, the law of the Lord. Have to have a right understanding, the author of scripture, to understand the nature of scripture, which leads you to a right, to rightly comprehend the description of scripture. Now, what do I mean when I say description of scripture? Well, look again at verse seven and how the word of God is described as the law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, the commandment of the Lord. What's consistent about those descriptions? Right? They emphasize the authority of the word of God. Do you realize that scripture is never referred to as the ideas of God? Or the suggestions of God? The musings of God? The opinions of God? Or, you know, the proposals? Here's one way to think about life. These are just the proposals of God. Why is that? Well, because God is not a traveling salesman walking through town trying to get people to listen to him, selling them things that they don't need. No. Scripture is a proclamation. So it's an announcement sent from the castle, if you will, trumpeting the good news of the gospel. Hear ye, hear ye. These are the precepts, the rules, the commands, and the laws of the Lord. These are the testimonies of your sovereign king. The consistent description of Scripture is that it's the law of the Lord, and it comes with absolute authority. And the adjectives here in Psalm 19 only add to that reality, right? Again, verses 7 to 9 tell us that Scripture is perfect, that it's sure, that it's, that it's right, that it's pure, that it's clean, and that it's true. Do you realize that's a declaration of inerrancy? Right? There, there, is, there is no error in the word of God. It is accurate and perfect in all that it says. That's what the Bible claims about itself, that the word of God is perfect, verse seven. It's right and it's true. So it doesn't contain any errors or any falsehood, that everything that it says about life and godliness is correct. Verse eight, that the commandment of the Lord is pure. There's nothing in it that is wrong or wicked. It is not diluted. It is not dumbed down in any way. It's like the purest gold imaginable, refined in the furnace until every last bit of impurity is burned up and taken away. Verse 7 says, The testimony of the Lord is sure. It's the firm foundation on which we can build our lives. And it's not going to shift or sag or change. Why is that? Because God never changes. 
He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do you see how the word of God is always grounded on the character of God? So if you're here and you're not in awe of God, then you're not going to be in awe of the word of God, which means that you'll never experience the glorious benefits of Scripture. Because the Bible wasn't written just so we'd have something to read when we get bored. No, it was given with a very specific eternal purpose. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture is God-breathed and profitable. Profitable for what? For teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Why? So that the man of God, the woman of God may be complete. Equipped for every good work. Psalm 19 says the exact same thing. Look at verse seven. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul, making wise the simple. Verse eight says the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart and enlightening the eyes. Verse nine, so that so they might make us righteous altogether for in keeping them, verse 11, the servant of God might be warned and find great reward. So it seems to me that this list addresses every single aspect of the Christian life. Starting with number one, the law revives the soul. Now, how exactly does the law of the Lord revive the soul? Well, the law of the Lord provides the straight edge that highlights just how crooked and sinful we really are. I mean, do you understand that's exactly why we went through the Ten Commandments one commandment at a time? Just to help us better understand how sinful we really are. Romans 7, so helpful here. Verse 7 asks, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. For if, we had not been, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would have not known what it is to covet if the law had not said to me, you shall not covet. That's the 10th commandment. What's the purpose of the law? The purpose of the law, for starters, is to show us our sin. So we might know that we're spiritually dead, so that we might repent, so that we might look outside of ourselves for a savior who actually kept the 10 commandments perfectly. Law not only shows us our sinfulness, our unrighteousness, but it also highlights our savior in showing us what righteousness really looks like, which he perfectly fulfilled. So in that way, the law is a tutor. It's a teacher that leads us to Christ, Galatians chapter three, showing us the glory of the Lord Jesus, his life, the sacrifice of his death, our desperate need for his substitutionary atonement that we might be forgiven so that we might have eternal life. Number one, the law revives the soul. Number two, the law makes wise the simple. Do you realize that Christians are the smartest people in every room. Christians are the smartest people in any room. Now, I don't say that to boast or brag or cause you to be arrogant in any way. It really should cause you to be unbelievably humble. But Christians understand the most important things in the world, that we're sinners in need of a savior. And that God's given us his law in order to instruct us on how to live in such a way that brings us the greatest good and him the greatest glory. That's why C.S. Lewis said God's commandments are what you'd wish for yourself if you knew what was best for you. So the law of the Lord makes us wise on how to live in a world that God created. 
It's been evident and obvious, I hope and pray, hasn't it, as we've walked through the Ten Commandments. But that just gets fleshed out in the New Testament, right? The unpacking, if you will, of the Ten Commandments in the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 4, Paul gives us this glorious summary statement. To put off the old self, which belongs to your former life and is corrupt through deceitful desires... And to put on the new self created after the likeness of God, he says, in true righteousness and holiness. But that gets unpacked, right? What does it look like to live wise in this world that God has created? Verse 22, put off falsehood. Speak truth with one another. Be angry, but don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't give the devil an opportunity. Don't steal, but work so you might have something to share with those in need. Don't let any unwholesome word come out of your mouth, but only that which is good for edification, for building up the body according to the need so that it might be a blessing that, to those who hear you. Can you hear the wisdom of those instructions? That if we actually lived our lives like that, our lives would be the best they possibly could be. How about verse 31? Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Here's words to the wise. Be kind to one another tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And don't miss how all of that is grounded in a right understanding of the gospel. Ephesians 5.1, that we walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Number one, the law revives the soul. Number two, the law makes wise the simple. Number, number three, the law rejoices the heart. Now, from my perspective, joy comes as a result of the law's influence from first to last, because when we hear the law and respond rightly to the gospel, we pass from death to life and are new creatures in Christ. Now, who here doesn't remember the joy that pervaded their soul the moment they first believed to know that your, your sins are forgiven, that your conscience is cleansed, that you've been accepted by Almighty God, that you've been embraced as a child of the King, adopted into His family and empowered to live for His glory? But our joy doesn't stop there. Instead, it continues as more and more light is shed on our salvation, the depth of our sin, the sufficiency of his grace. And we continue to make progress, putting sin to death, walking in righteousness, hating what is evil, loving what is good. And how does that happen specifically? By learning the word, the law of the Lord. Loving the law of the Lord. And then recognizing that it's instruction that we would live the law of the Lord, understanding God's instructions and walking in God's way all according to the law of the Lord. So there's a growing confidence that our lives are lived with purpose and meaning. So in light of all this, what should our orientation be towards the law of the Lord? Verse 10 tells us, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Let that just sink in for a moment. The psalmist valued the law of the Lord more than anything money could buy. So more than any material possession, more than any vacation, more than any temporal 
pleasure. None of those things even came close to how much he loved and valued the law of the Lord, worth more more to him than gold, even much fine gold, and was sweeter to him than honey. Couldn't get enough of it. Loved it. Devoured it. Was happy to beg, borrow, and steal just to have it. To take it in. To meditate on it. Soak in its truths and be blessed by its instruction. It was a delight to his mind. It was a salve to his soul. It was sweeter to him than honey. Let me just ask you, as we come out of the Ten Commandments, is that your orientation to the law of the Lord? Do you have a love for the word that is greater than money? Greater than stuff? Greater than the latest gadget? Do you treasure the Bible more than things, more than vacations or experiences or entertainment or rest or relaxation? Here's a question. Do you love the law of the Lord more than food? I mean, what a helpful category to think about your love for the word of God in comparison to your love of food. How you crave it, have to have it, are unsettled and uncomfortable and desperate for it just to survive. Is that your heart toward the law of the Lord? I'm pretty sure that unless you're a hopeless liar or are absolutely clueless, you're going to answer, no, I don't think I love the Lord like that. But should we be satisfied with that answer? I think not. Which is why we must be a people who are in awe of God and therefore have this growing, unquenchable appetite for the word of God, the law of the Lord, that we would not be so quickly satisfied with mediocrity, but would strive with greater passion to be people who learn the law, love the law, and live the law for our good and for God's glory. Which brings us to our response to God's law, the climax of Psalm 19. If you would follow along, I'll read verses 11 to 14. Look at verse 11. This is where my title for the sermon came. So instructive. Verse 11, moreover by them, by what? By the law of the Lord is your servant warned. In keeping them, the law of the Lord, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Again, zoom in on verse 11 for a second. I want you to be absolutely clear that by the law we are both warned and by the law we find great reward. Why is that? Well, because the entire Bible is ultimately about the Lord Jesus Christ. All of Scripture points to Him. So the law of the Lord warns you of what will happen if you don't repent of your sin and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it highlights the great reward if you do. So dear unbeliever, Learn from the law. Let it lead you to Jesus. 
Let the law show you your sin so that you might own it, that you might admit to it, that you might stop running from it or denying it. And let the law point you to the Lord Jesus so you might respond to God's glorious message of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Because true joy, real wisdom, and eternal reward are found only in him, not anywhere else. True joy is not found in your work, your relationships, or your money. That will not ultimately satisfy. Real wisdom is not found in this world. That's why the Bible tells us that Christ is the wisdom of God. Dear unbeliever, be warned. All of those things will ultimately end in death and destruction. The only true, ultimate, and eternal reward is found in the Lord Jesus because he's the only one who offers you eternal life. So I appeal to you, listen to the law. Let it instruct you. Let it show you the reality of your sin and let it point you to the Lord Jesus, the only one who perfectly fulfilled it so that you can put your faith in him and be forgiven of your sin. And to my brothers and sisters in Christ, my encouragement this morning is to commit right here, right now, to cultivate a love for the law. To be resolved to let, to let the word, the, the law of the Lord be your treasure. Because we all know that where our treasure is, there will our heart be also. This would be a conscious, thoughtful, calculated decision that you can make right now to spend time in it, in the word of God, the law of the Lord. Because you want to cultivate an awe of God that you know you don't have, but you know that you want so that you can reap all the benefits that are highlighted here in Psalm 19. You want to see the law revive your soul. You want to see the law have its good effect on your life, that you might be wise unto salvation, that you might be wise unto sanctification, that you, it would have its good effect to bring joy to your heart and happiness to your life, that you would live your life recognizing that your understanding of life is flawed and you need God to instruct you. That's why he gave you his word so that you could live in such a way to bring glory and honor to his name at the same time that you bring joy to your heart. You want to see all those benefits become more real, more tangible, more satisfying as you seek and savior the word of God, the law of the Lord. Learn the law. Let it lead you to Jesus. Love the law. Let it be your treasure and live the law. Let it instruct you on your ways. The law of the Lord gives us the clearest picture of what righteousness looks like as we live it out in our lives. So, so if we learn it and if we love it, it will start having its good effect on our life on a daily basis. We will start, look at verse 12, discerning our errors. It will keep us from presumptuous sins, verse 13. It will enable us to be blameless and innocent, free of great transgression, living life in a way that is acceptable and pleasing to God, according to verse 14. Because you now know the law of the Lord. And you have embraced it as the inspired and errant, infallible word of God that it is. So when God is speaking, you're listening. God has always been speaking. He speaks through creation. He speaks through the beauty of the day that he's given us this morning. 
Blue skies, sunshine, beautiful temperature. I couldn't have ordered a better, more better temperature this morning. I walked outside. I was like, hey, no heat, no humidity. This is glorious. God's communicated in creation. But he's communicated specifically in his word. He said to us, live like this. You will find great joy. If you just listen to me, I'm communicating. Will you listen? And just for clarity, as we close, is this a workspace orientation to life that you're promoting? No. Look at where the psalmist ends. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. How? O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. See, the psalmist is clear. The law of the Lord shows us our sin. But the law of the Lord also highlights our Savior. He lived this law perfectly so that by faith in him, we can be redeemed and we can be empowered. We can be given a heart that desires to live like this, that his name would be glorified. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation in my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord my rock, and my redeemer. May we have that orientation, that we would learn the law, that we would love the law, and that we would live the law for our good and his glory. Allow me to pray. Father, we're grateful for your word. We're so grateful for your instruction. Father, we're grateful for your law. I pray that we would be a people who learn the law. I I, I pray that we would learn it to such a profound level that it would just consistently highlight the reality of our sin. Not so that we would be a people who, who live in this woe is me mindset, but so that we would see the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, our desperate need for a savior who lived this law perfectly perfect righteousness in his life, perfect righteousness in his death for our salvation. Father, that by faith in him, you give us your spirit so that we're empowered to be instructed by the law that we would live in a way that brings about our greatest joy and your greatest glory. Father, I pray that you would be working these things in our minds and in our hearts, that we would live in such a way that your name would be glorified. Father, we pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.